Hello and thanks for tuning in. This is the radio ministry of Grace Community Church in Jefferson City, Missouri. Please open up your Bibles and join us. Here's Pastor Dennis Helton. Thank you for letting me do some Christmas songs. We got cheated on Sunday by the ice. <laughs> so I missed that. I think everybody did because we uh, always, every year, just love to sing these these songs. Why don't we uh, why don't we start off with prayer? Father, we thank you for who you are. You certainly are a great God. And of course, at this time of the year, we think of you coming to earth. We think of the incarnation, the great Almighty God of the universe, infinite as you are, and at the same time, then taking on flesh, and so you could die for our sins. That's the real reason why you came. Thank you, Lord, for forgiveness of sins. Thank you for this time of the year that uh, reminds us of the the great joy, Christ our Savior, coming uh, to save us here. We thank you so much of that. Lord, as we uh, look into your word tonight, may we give you honor and glory just by learning a little bit more how you work and your word instructs us. Thank you for all these things and all these people that we worship with and study with every uh, all throughout the, uh, the weeks, the months, and the years. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we, uh, we come to that uh, grand chapter uh, dealing with free will, and this is chapter 9. I believe I have on, on your outlines. If you have those, do we did we run out? Do we have any more scattered somewhere? Something back that way? Yeah, thanks. Uh, we're we're going we're gonna to take a little bit of, uh, I guess you could say, a controversial issue. And uh, biblically, there really is no controversy. But uh, in the world today, and even in the church today, people will uh, dispute you on the aspect of free will. And what we want is, what does the Bible say about free will? And, um, of course, we're dealing with the confession of faith, and we're using the Colonial Congregational Confession tonight, uh, very close to the Westminster, really. Um, Know what you believe and why you believe it. That's why we have confessions. That's why we have... um, Creeds. Creeds are almost like a paragraph or two. They can be real short. Confessions are a little bit longer. They'll have uh, paragraphs, maybe, of particular doctrines and the major doctrines uh, of the Bible. And so the one that we're studying helps us get in tune with some of the great major doctrines of the Bible, and it's still in a short form that you can get in a way that's a handle rather than going through everything. And uh, So... um, we come to the, the text, uh, or the, the idea of uh, free will. Is the human will bound, or is it free? Can man choose freely between each and every option that comes up to him? Is man's will uh, neutral, or has it been internally affected uh, so that uh, it influences our choices? How far did man fall in, when he sinned? Uh, was it just a mere stumble, or was it a total uh, collapse? Uh, and if God commands people to be obedient, then if we can't do it on our own, how can we be responsible for our unrighteousness? 
uh, people might ask those questions. Uh, there's probably no better theological contribution than uh, one of my favorites and probably many of your favorites, uh, Jonathan Edwards. He has a lot to say on this, wrote a very detailed book dealing with the freedom of the will, uh, very clearly articulated, and you have to marvel at his work. Uh, it's a very thorny issue today. It's controversial, and it probably has been since uh, the fall of man. <laughs> because a man really wants to have his own free will, and we hear about that in history. Just to give you a little bit of brief history, um, there, as far as the early church fathers, there doesn't appear to be much controversy on free will in, in the body of Christ at that time. And that was prior to Augustine and Pelagius. And Pelagius and his controversy was in the 5th century, in the 400s. There had been a little bit of debate going on early. You think of Chrysostom and Origen and Jerome, and, of course, they opposed determinism, uh, fatalism, I guess you could say. And, um, but the Pelagian controversy took center stage, and it was uh, brightly seen as it came on the scene, and uh, this Pelagius, he was a, a, a British-born monk. Uh, he lived in Rome, uh, and he was angered because uh, many Christians said, hey, listen, we live in the flesh, and so therefore we just can't help it of what we do. It's almost like a Gnosticism. Uh, here's the flesh, it's bad. Uh, it's impossible to fulfill the righteousness of God, so... You know, they would live loosely because of that. Well, Pelagius re reacted to that, and he reacted way too much to the extreme, and he preached that God commanded nothing impossible for people to do, that if he gives commands, then they can be willing, they can do the things that God asked them to do. If they will to do it, then they, they can do it. Now, there's a chief problem with that, is because he didn't understand the inability of man spiritually. Um... He says that really man is capable of doing whatever God says. And with that kind of thought, he really dismissed the idea that man is dead and he's trespasses and sins, which is the scriptural aspect. He, he dismissed anything dealing with um, the sin nature of man. That's a major problem. And, of course... Today you'd have a lot of people who go to church that would probably be on his side or at least semi-Pelagian, um, knowing that they can do spiritual things. Um, anyway, he was condemned by, by the church and uh, in 418, I guess it was, at the Council of, of Carthage. Uh, he denied the universality of sin. And, of course, the one that... Uh, debated him and definitely won the argument was Augustine. And this is where the Reformed theology gets a lot of its thoughts that come from Augustine who dealt with this position that Pelagius had and he had to answer it, didn't he? Well, none better to do than that. He really dealt with the bondage of the will, which about a thousand years later, you're going to have a man rise up by God and write a book called The Bondage of the Will that man being Martin Luther. And he borrowed a lot from Augustine, as did Calvin. 
Zwingli and Bucer and Knox, uh, the reformers. Um, grace is absolutely necessary, is what uh, Augustine said, because we are naturally inclined towards sin. Man is dead in his trespasses and sins, and no one can be saved by himself. <laughs> Obviously. Um, Augustine debated the position of Pelagius, who Augustine said he undermined the gospel. Well, absolutely, didn't he? If, if, if it's something that we do, then what really is the cross about and grace about? Man has the power entirely of himself to choose God. That's the Pelagian belief. No wonder he was kicked out of the church, right? Sad to say, that theology crept right back into the church very soon. Um, of course, at the Reformation, at the heart of the Reformation, this was a big issue, as it is a big issue today and all throughout church history. So Bondage of the Will was written, and it was a response to Erasmus. Erasmus is the one responsible for getting the Greek New Testament to Martin Luther who then translated it into German. He had a lot to do with bringing it into you know, to the, the Greek, then later to be uh, translated. But anyway, Erasmus had a book called The Diatribe Concerning Free Will. Well, he really took basically the position that um, the man who had been kicked out of the church earlier had been. He had been a little more semi-Pelagian, uh, I guess, in, in one sense. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, Augustine definitely won... Uh, during that time, Bondage of the Will is uh, a classic book. Man is not able to take credit whatsoever because his will is in bonds. He is imprisoned. Uh, it, it takes sovereign grace to intervene. Well, no man can do anything righteous before God. And uh, this brought on the thought then as it developed Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s then I believe articulated it very clearly. John Calvin wrote uh, a book dealing with free will. He wrote it in uh, the Institutes. The Puritans wrote much on, uh, when I say free will, we know that um, there, there's a bondage of the will, but there's still a free will. That's the only thing is, is that, and that's what we're going to try to look at in, in this tonight, it, uh, what is it inclined to do? What is its nature? Edwards defined the will as the mind choosing, and I want you to grasp that. That's really what he hit on in, a, in the entire book is that point. Um, it really had never really been defined that way because people just self-defined it. I have a will to do that, so therefore I do that. And Jonathan Edwards says our choices are not determined by the will, but by the mind. It's our thinking that makes that choice. Why does the mind choose one thing over another is, is a thought here. And this is where Edwards then brought in the thought of motives. It's the motives. We choose one thing over another because our mind chooses what it thinks is best. Gerstner has a little paragraph to sum up Jonathan Edwards' thought. I'll read it here if it's okay. 
Your choices as a rational person are always based on various considerations or motives that are before you at the time. Those motives have a certain weight with you and the motives for and against reading a book, for example, are weighed in the balance of your mind. The motives that outweigh all others are what you indeed choose to follow. Whatever your motives are, that's what you'll follow. You being a rational person will always choose what seems to you to be the right thing. Does that make sense? You're going to choose what seems to you to be the right thing. The wise thing, the most advisable thing to do. You wouldn't want to choose something that is against everything that you would think be best, right? If you choose not to do the right thing, the advisable thing, the thing that you're inclined to do, you would, of course, be insane. You'd be crazy. You'd be choosing something that you did not choose. You'd find something preferable that you didn't prefer. But you, being a rational and sane person, choose something because it seems to you the right, proper, good, advantageous thing to do. And that's kind of summing up Edward's uh, thought uh, that's dealing with motives. We choose according to that which we desire most. And that's what Edwards uh, came up with. And he said, because of the fall, because the fall was total depravity, you know, in that sense, it was not just partial. It, it affected some things and other things it didn't. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We have sinned by nature. We're God-haters. Um, we need a new nature. It's going to take the sovereign act of God to give us this new nature. We are in need of the sovereign hand of grace. Um, and, and he went on and he said, Edward said that what plagued Pelagius was a paradox of human responsibility, and humans are responsible for their sin. And they are to follow God's holy commands. So God commands this, people are responsible for it, but yet spiritually, they cannot do spiritual things. Pelagius really had a problem with it, and he said, whatever God commands, that implies that we are able to obey him, and we can choose to do that. That is what led Pelagius to later deny the universality of sin. And Edwards then, he, he said there is a natural inability, and a natural inability is like we humans have certain things that we are not able to do, like fly like a bird. We do not have that ability. We might like to want to do that, but we cannot do that. We're, we're held by that. There's also one called a moral inability, morally inability and there there's the spiritual inability um, if if nature doesn't allow it then it's not going to happen if you have a spiritual nature I mean when you when you think spiritually you know we can only do things because God has put it in our heart but if you don't have that spiritual nature that you cannot do anything now and this is where he went on to say there is a natural capacity in mankind, though, to understand good things, to understand even like the Ten Commandments, not to steal. <coughs> Anybody who's not a Christian, they understand that that's not a good thing, especially if people do it to you, right? Um, there's a natural ability to do, in that sense, and I said not spiritual ability, but a natural ability 
to do good things or even try to follow the Ten Commandments, even though ultimately it shows we really can't do that. Uh, but it's, uh, you can see the, the moral inability that's there. Fallen man has the natural ability to choose God, but lacks the moral ability to do that. Does that make sense? He can understand the things that God commands, and he might even want to do it, but there is an inability that he has, and it's the moral inability. And all at the same time, the responsibility lies upon everyone. God commands it. We're able to hear that command, but we don't possess this spiritual nature. So without a, right, without a righteous uh, inclination to do good, no one ever can choose good. That kind of sums up uh, Edwards and Calvin and Augustine and all the reformers. And this is where the modern day church has a problem with Calvinism because they think then that makes one a robot and makes one a puppet on strings. And this is why in the confession it explains that because they were going through all those same things that we would uh, deal with today too. And this is what Edward said. Here's the greatness of the gospel. The gospel, the greatness of the gospel is visible only when viewed against the backdrop of the greatness of the ruin into which we have been plunged by the fall. So when somebody says they have the free will to choose God, I have the free will to walk down this aisle and trust God without really any inclination before to do that. Well, one may trust in Christ at that time, but just to come up with it on their own, uh, they cannot do that. And he saw that this need, when we see how great God is, and how great the gospel, the good news is, and how much we need it, against the backdrop of our sin, and how bad it really is, and how it shows where man is at, then we see the good news. The good news is good. Our natural inclination of sin is bad news, isn't it? But here's the good news, and we have the ability to incline ourselves to that as God gives it to us. Calvin called free will an idol. It's idolatry. Free will. Somebody wants free will? Well, your free will will continue to go in the way that you think, the very nature that you are. Uh, so generally, it's, it's kind of a bad word. It means to us when we hear that, but, but yet it used in the right way is okay. Um, it's here to stay. 17th century, 20th century. Uh, it, in a way, it's very meaningful and true. But in another way, it can mean something that's not true. Semantics is, is a problem with this, uh, linguistic use. Let's see what they said in, in the confession. I'll make it a little bit bigger. Does that help? Or one more? One more? Uh, now I have to pull this over. And I can't see where I'm at. I'm blinded. There we go. Oh, it's one way or the other. Okay. I'm going with that. 
God has endued the will of man by nature with liberty and the power to choose and act upon his choice. This free will is neither forced nor destined by any necessity of nature to do good or evil. Now, when you read that, you'd say, well, that's what the, all the philosophers and, and such are saying. That's what they're teaching in the schools. That's even what they're teaching in, in church. Um, God is indeed the will of man by nature. It's, it's free. It, it has liberty. Uh, it's, and what the confession here is really saying, it's not forced. He doesn't force your will. Man has a certain will when he's created. And um, this doesn't say what that will is, but it tells, it, tells us what it's not. Uh, it doesn't tell us uh, how it operates, but it tells us how it doesn't operate and it doesn't operate by force it has liberty it's never operated from an absolute necessity and so if you take the Westminster Confession we have seen the decrees of God God is going to do what he's going to do and so you say well, okay he's sovereign and, and every little thing he's involved with no doubt but he will still not do violence to the will of man and I'm glad that's first point is here because people who are not Calvinist they will condemn Calvinists because they say, well, that makes man a uh, puppet on strings, a robot. Uh, his will is forced by God, and that is simply not true. And that's what this first point is saying here, uh, as he doesn't force the will. He doesn't push us into that. Um, let's see, if somebody put a gun to my head and said... Drop it, drop that gun, or die. Or, or drop, drop what I'm doing here. Drop what I'm writing here, okay? Maybe speaking. Shut up or die. Now, the thing is, I actually have a choice now. And you can say, well, he's, going to, he's forcing you into that. No, he's not. Because you have a decision to make, either to live or die. If you're going to live, then I'm going to have to stop talking here. I have to stop writing, right? And so if that be the case, I can choose to die or I can choose to live, but it's a choice of mine. Now, if I lay down my, my uh, let's say, my voice, okay, I, I stop, I, I just quit talking, I may do that because it's more important to continue live than to continue to talk for that moment. Um, but you still can't say I was compelled to do that. I still made a choice to keep talking and maybe probably die. Uh, Jack Benny, uh, I think, um, might remember the one joke that he said, wow. Ah, do you have it, Janice? Do you know where we're going there? How's that go? Uh, a robber came up and said, Your money or your life? And there was a long pause, and he said, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that money that Jack Benny was really <laughs> anyway um, what what were let's let's take a look at a couple of scriptures so look at Matthew 17 12 we're talking about God not making one be forced Matthew 17 12. 
Look at the uh, choice that is made by man here. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. These people chose to do that. We know in Acts chapter 2 we see that they chose to do that, and yet at the same time it was all predestined, predetermined by God for that to happen. But still yet they did what they did. They chose to do that. God did not force them, although it's been ordained by God to do, foreordained. Now we might like to try to get that a little in a little handy thought box and try to process that. And sooner or later you you can't get into the mind of God. You have to believe that is uh, all the above are part of what God has in mind. Um, go to James 1.14. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. First of all, James speaking to believers here, but we're talking. There's a choice that we make when we we sin, right? We have our own lust. Yeah, Barb. I used that today in a conversation I was having with a coworker um, at lunch. who was Catholic, and her question to me was, if I mean, I'm just making a long story short, but um, she asked me. She said, "Well, if Jesus." Or if God doesn't tempt us, then how come in the Lord's Prayer we ask Him to lead us not into temptation? And I told her, right. well, what's the opposite of into? It's out of. To lead us out of temptation. It doesn't say how we got there. We know how we got there. And then I pointed to this verse. So, but I thought that was interesting, the way she asked that. Yeah. Why do we pray that then? I guess, of course, that would probably be the same as, well, if God is sovereign, why do we even pray? Or if God is sovereign, he's going to choose who he's going to choose, well, why do we evangelize then? But that's all part of God's plan. Very good. Yeah. Um, Oh, Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 30, verse 19. Now, people who are against Calvinism will definitely use this verse, but um, I think we can use it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and curse. So choose life in order that you may live, uh, you and your descendants. That's by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice. There's the command. Choose life, right? Or the curse. Um, so there's there's a choice to be made. But you remember, if you're dead in your trespasses and sins, you can't choose life. You don't want to choose that kind of life, a, a God kind of life. Um, somebody could say, well, you know, God just, he makes it, he makes it happen. You know, I, I had to do that. The, you know, or people, you know, they made me do that. Nobody ever makes you do anything. 
except that you choose to do something fully aware of the consequences that follow. It still comes down to you making that choice. Uh, it's always your choice, as the confession states. Uh, no such thing as a compelled will. Very clearly at the outset, right, the very first one, he starts with that. And uh, like I said, I, I think that's good because Calvinists, true Calvinists who are biblical, never ever talk about God forcing the will on somebody. Uh, predestination that forces uh, it on people or pushes. Uh, that is not the case. It's a will that has liberty, as it says. Let's look at the second one. Man, in his state of innocency, had freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God. But he was unstable so that he might fall from this condition. Now we get into the four states of man. Uh, here we have the first state of man in his innocence. Um, Thomas Boston uh, wrote on this, and he wrote on the four states of man. And here it is at, in man's innocence. Um, he had no sin. Um, man was passe non peccare, uh, ability to not sin. That's where man was at. He was able to not sin. He had the power to refuse a temptation. Uh, the fall hadn't happened. But he also could fall away from that too. Um, but according to number one, he would not be pushed into that although we know that God ordains what he did, but yet, I mean, how sin came into the world, but yet at the same time, Adam, Eve were responsible. Um, the apple was not forced into Adam's mouth, was it? There was a choice made there. Look in Ecclesiastes 7.29. Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes... 729 Behold I have found only this that God made men upright at the very outset but they have sought out many devices people cannot blame God because they have their own sin don't they their own responsibility he made men upright sought out many devices Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. There is free will. If somebody wants to talk about free will, there it is. That kind of free will to choose the things of God went amiss after that. It, seems like it was destroyed. Skipping the part, the, the story of the garden itself, what happens there? Like, 
there's a fall of man, that means that everything after is corrupt. And, and it, it sort of it sends a shockwave through their whole argument because they don't want to do it. That is what, what it's all about right I there. Just, I don't, yeah, I don't what happened at the fall? Pass over that part. Yeah. <laughs> and people that argue for free will, they have a problem then when it comes to the fall of man. Uh-huh. And, of course, um, um, Pelagius sure had that problem, didn't he? And look where it finally took him. And that's where it will always go if somebody believes in a free will be able to choose God on their own. Yeah, so we see man in his innocence there. He was able to choose it or he was able to refuse it. And, of course, what happened? He used his free will and became a fallen man. And so, therefore, that's what we have now, as we've already seen in previous parts to this confession. Fallen man. Man was uh, originally innocent. Augustine said he was this, passe peccari, able to sin. Passe non peccari, able to not sin. That's where he was at. That was the state of man. So we get into the now the second state of man, as Thomas Boston put it. It's easy to follow. The outline is through Scripture. But uh, man's innocence and then man in the fall, uh, in, in sin. After the fall, passe non peccari was eradicated. He doesn't have that same free will anymore. Um, demolished, extinguished. It's gone in, in the sense of choosing the things of God. Any tendency at all for any kind of virtue is wiped out. It's total, completely. Um, the only possibility uh, is this state of sin. That's the nature now of man. Um, now it sounds contradictory to our very first statement that we talked about, which said that there was liberty. Of course, we still have to go back to the fall of man. And at the same time, uh, we look at man in this sin, and he cannot not sin. That's the thought. People say, well, they do good sometimes. Well, yeah, but it still does not please God as far as the spiritual nature is concerned because they have no spiritual nature. He's only able to sin because that's what he desires That's the desire that he has. After the fall, he became dead. Virtue was really of of no attribute uh, to one in in that state. Of course, we can think of Romans. Uh, Romans 8, 7 really, I think, explains it very good. There's so many passages we can go with. You can think of Ephesians chapter 2. And because of little time here, and I'm going through this very rapidly, in Romans 8, 7, it says, because the mind, remember Jonathan Edwards saying it's the mind, it's the thinking, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, that's the nature, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. It cannot please God. And so it says, verse 8, and those who are in the flesh, those who are not believers, cannot Please God. How else can you say it? They cannot do it. Their nature, dead. Dead. Their inclination is is always that way. Um, There's no freedom here. 
in, in this state uh, spiritually. They can still choose to do things, you know, but they cannot cannot choose the right things of God. Matter of fact, but it's never forced. It's not forced on them. Um, somebody might just think, well, I love the darkness. I love the dark kind of light. Christ represents the light. I hate the light. I don't, you know, I don't like Christ. I, I hate that. Capable, but of only sin. Capable of only sinning. There's no contradiction. It's just explaining that there's a moral inability of fallen man. There's no externals on him forcing him to be that way. So is that then non-posse, non-pecari? Is that that not able to not sin? Right. That's their nature. Right. Right. Yeah, you have to think through that, don't you? Uh, It's not compulsory. That's the position they're in, though. They cannot convert themselves. You can see how this can lead to effectual calling, which is the next one, right? See how this is going in that direction? Anyway, we come to another one here. God frees man from his natural bondage. And this is the good news. One has to see that bad news. You can see why the gospel has to be preached correctly. One has to see their true need. Um, Colossians 1.13 is a, one of the many, many texts you could use on this. Colossians 1.13 For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He rescued us. He took us out of that darkness, out of that bondage. Bondage of the will. Martin Luther, Boyd says it all, all I think. The will is bound in what it, uh, what it is. Look in John 8.36. Oh, this really says it. Somebody wants to talk about free will, free will of choosing God. John 8.36. See what Jesus says about this. This is a famous one, isn't it? So if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. If the Son gives you free will, you will have free will indeed. The Son makes you free. Out of the bondage, out of the domain of darkness, then you're free. If the Son does that, right? Son of God, Christ. Philippians 2.13 For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. This is talking to a Christian now. He's working in us. It's His will that works in us. But also, if you back up a verse before that, He says, So then, my beloved, just as you also have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there's a responsibility now. We Christians, we can do the things that God commands us. Work it out. He's working it in. We just exercise that. We do that. And it's because He's given us a new nature. We're now able to do it. 
and that's God frees man. And, and what happens, though, we have a love for the light now, don't we? But the problem is, is that we, and we hate darkness, but there's another sense that I still have a desire to do some things that are dark. I still sin. I'm not in the bondage of it. I have a new nature. But this is the third state we're in, as Thomas Boston talked about. And it's the state where God has converted us, freed us from our natural bondage, but we're still in our bodies. We still sin. We get convicted of that sin. I'm turning into a new direction. I'm going that way. But I still have a remaining love for some dark things. Shouldn't have, but there's still that pride and everything that he's trying to strip from us. We have a remainder that's, that's there. We're a free agent now, though, as Christians, able to make our own choices. Are we going to obey God or are we going to sin? We're going to, we have the ability now to do that. We are inclined, our nature is inclined toward virtue. God instilled that into us. Uh, still yet we can do vice. Uh, I have to think of Romans 7, 15 through 23. Paul says, I do the things that I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I should be doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, right? And then he, he finishes that up and then Romans 8. Now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, therefore, there's the battle. And that's the battle, even though we've been freed from uh, that bondage. Um, I don't think I read number four. Uh, actually, I don't even think I read number three. I'll read three. Man by his fall into a state of sin has completely lost all moral ability of will to perform any of the spiritual good which accompanies salvation. All the scripture that we looked at, that's what it's saying there. As a natural man, he is altogether averse to spiritual good and dead in sin. He's not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself for conversion. That's what the fall did. Here's number three. You can say, Dennis, I haven't understood a thing you've said all day here. It sounds like it's way over my head. And then you read this paragraph and you go, oh, is that what you're saying? That's the good of a confession in one little paragraph. All that stuff that I took and said out there that might be spilling out over and go, <laughs> And number four, what we just finished with, when God converts a sinner and translates him into a state of grace, taking out that bondage, right? He frees him from his natural bondage to sin. The natural bondage to sin because of the fall of man. And by grace alone, grace alone, he enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Because God saves us, he does it on his own, by his sovereign grace, by his will, by God's free will, he then enables us to freely will to do the things of God whereas a natural man does not have that. But because of his remaining corruptions, he does not only or perfectly will, there's that word perfect right there, he doesn't perfectly will that which is good, but also wills that which is 
evil. That explains our struggle, our bondage. Yeah, we're out of that, but we still battle. And then the, the fifth one, and this is the fourth state of man. This is what we look forward. This is the glorification of man. The will of man will only be made perfectly and immutably free to will good alone in the state of glory. No more sin. Uh, think of Ephesians 4.13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. When is that? The perfect unity of the faith. And of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We're growing right now. We keep growing. Keep growing in Christ. But one day we will come to the absolute perfect unity of the faith. Absolute perfect maturity to the very stature of Jesus Christ without sin, in that sense. And that would take us up to the need of an effectual calling. That means it's effective, it's all by God, and who He calls will come every time. He accomplished it all, He didn't make something possible. I'm going to make it possible, but it's up to them if they come. If that be the case, nobody's going to do it. Because we've seen through Scripture, we've seen through this, the sovereign grace of God is the only thing that would make us want to come to Him. Anyway, I think that in a short little sense is a pretty good idea of what true free will is. And I think it is totally misunderstood in our culture today as it has been throughout church history. Man likes the thought of being really free, totally in charge of his life. That's the problem. Thank you guys for coming out. Deep subject. We've been over it many times. Thanks for hanging with it. But I, you know, looking at those scriptures and looking how that's summed up, I'm going, wow. You could read those little five basic sentences and get a really good handle on what free will is. You don't even have to read Edward's book, but I'd hardly recommend it if you want to get into a read. But be ready to be challenged. That might have been Edward's best work. It's rather deep. Uh, Sproul has a book out uh, called... Uh, willing to believe, that would be even easier to read. Very good, a little paperback. Anyway, thank you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening and thank you for this subject that's so controversial to the human thinking and yet your word makes it very, very clear. We've read it, studied those passages many times, but... Help us to understand a little more thorough as it glorifies you, really. It's all about your freedom, your will to do as you please. And Lord, we have that, want to have that desire more and more to do as you please. Not as we will, but your will. In your son's name, amen. Hey, we thank you once again for joining us. 
We pray that this message would serve to edify you. And we say goodbye until next time. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. Till next time.